to the double digits of the Tartar Project. Episode 10. Hey, Phil Toronto, back again for the 10th time. Thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Today, we have a super interesting guest, one of the most interesting stories and non-conventional stories, as you'll hear, Maddie Moe, or as you may know him now, the most famous artist. He decided to be a famous artist and went out and did it. And you'll hear that that's very in tune with his life motto and mantra. And that's just kind of who he is. The exciting part for me was getting some of the backstory on his art and activations, if you will. Uh, And you'll see what I mean later on in the episode. But just hearing the thinking behind how he approaches problems and how he approaches building his own brand as the most famous artist and persona online is super compelling and very applicable uh, across a a number of different industries and companies, not necessarily always having to deal with an individual, but just building a brand in the way that he describes and kind of finding a way to tinker is, is fascinating. So I really appreciated him coming in. He's in town from LA, doing a lot of important meetings, being an artist, which is fascinating for me. Um, and I'll let him jump right in now. We're back. Episode probably 10, but not totally sure. We'll see what happens if we bump up, bump down. Friend of mine, Maddie Mo, also known, probably more realistically known as the most famous artist to everyone else and me as well. I'm an, I'm a collector. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for letting me convince you to have me on your show. <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty, pretty quick turnaround Yeah, from request slash statement to calendar invite. I'd say it's about a week turnaround. You could improve just a little bit in terms of the <laughs> sending the reservation via Google Calendar. But other than that, like, you know, 12 hours delayed is acceptable. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take that. Do you do your own scheduling? Mostly. Then I give you more credit. I'll take it. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just dive right in. Where where did you grow up? I grew up, I'd say, in three phases. Born in Massachusetts. Uh, that's where my dad's side of the family lived. Up until elementary school, where I went to school in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's where I learned... My pleases and thank yous and yes ma'ams and no ma'ams. Southern and how, hospitality. And how y'all doings. There we are. Uh, and then San Diego for middle school and high school. Nice. And then growing up, did you did you have lemonade stands? Were you ripping people's flowers out of their yard and selling them back to them? Did you have any entrepreneurial ventures? So I was less of like a a hustler and more of a tinkerer. I was like building model rockets in my garage. I was trying to invent things. Um, never really monetized those inventions, but it kept me curious. Curiosity is so important. However, I've told the anecdote before, not on a podcast, so this is exclusive content. First time for the bah, format. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> I like, need an air horn. I need <laughs> an air horn badly. So bad. uh, <laughs> you need some sound effects. Um, I think I spent so much time 
in middle school sitting in a garage inhaling like glue from the model rockets that had I not done that, I would probably be like Einstein level IQ. Fair. <laughs> you saw the doors were closed and windows too. Yeah. yeah. And I developed this like twitch, like, <laughs> <laughs> you can't see, uh, you can Man. see it if you're, yeah. yeah but, eventually yeah. they'll see the twitch. Yeah. The, uh, my parents thought I thought something was really wrong with me. It turns out I just had to get out of the garage. That's fair. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's an easy fix. Yeah. High school wise, did you care about school? I knew I wanted to go to Stanford because I had heard stories that that's where you go to become a billionaire. So I found a path to get there, which was getting really good at wrestling because I wasn't the smartest guy in the classroom. Um, I was good at picking the smartest partners to be on projects with me and encouraging them to do really well. And as a result, I got good grades. Um, but I was primarily focused on my goal, which was to get into Stanford. Very early signs of a CEO, I'd say. Yeah. Very smart. See, like you get <laughs> the tinkering probably helped. Tinkering, yeah. So you get to Stanford, you are wrestling. Which was miserable. <laughs> In I, what I, sense? Just like training twice a day, waking up before school to train, going to school. And not being like that smart, right? So you're like barely passing and then tra training again. And by training, I really mean just like getting the absolute shit kicked out of me. Right. Because I was a hack of a wrestler. Like I had two moves. And in high school, two moves will get you to the state championships, you know? Yeah. In San Diego, yeah. <laughs> in San Diego. Well, California is a really hard state. That makes sense. Behind Pansel huge. Pennsylvania, Jersey. There's a few a few states. That are excel at wrestling. The Iowa's of the world. Oh, I get that. Yeah. Mostly. But, but freshman year, uh, did wrestling, decided it wasn't for me. Coincidentally met uh, some really smart people. Actually, my dad dropped me off at school and he said, Matt, find a business partner. <laughs> <laughs> he said, find a business, start a business and get going. Like this, this shit isn't going to pay for itself. So, um, you know, luckily... I didn't have to quit wrestling. I was able to like segue out of that really gracefully because there was a, ch a turnover in our coaches. So the coach that recruited me in had to leave after my freshman year. And the coach that came in after him was not the same coaching style. So I used that as like an excuse to ah, quit wrestling. Smart. Like gracefully. Um, if you don't vibe, you don't vibe. Yeah. And I didn't want to mess up this modeling face. Right. You know? <laughs> that would, that comes in handy to this day. So I think that was good foresight on your part. Yeah. Well, cause one of my big goals is to be like a supermodel. Right. Well, I, I'm not even going to judge that by any means, because if you, if you say it and put it out there, it's probably going to happen. Yeah. Happen with art, but we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, We'll, get to, we'll that. get to that. So you found business partners, you segue out of wrestling. You're, you're not going to be in the Olympics, unfortunately mm -hmm. yet. I mean, we could maybe jump into that in a decade or two, but or curling. Oh, hell of a sport. Having a bit of a renaissance. Curling is. Yeah. What do you think that is? I just, I feel like with today's modern content portrayals, the kids are seeing how exciting the sport is. Yeah, it's good stuff. The yeah. internet. Whew. It's, I believe in it. I'm long internet. Yeah. <laughs> you found your business partners. What, what was the business? Well, the business early on was just like smoking weed in the basement, thinking of ideas. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know, like yeah. as any good kid founder does. Founder journey. Yeah, founder journey. <laughs> like 
uh, sitting in the pool room in the basement of Stern Hall. Our 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 dorm room was Burbank. It was I called it like kind of kind of like romantically the armpit of campus. Oh, nice! Just like smelled. Yeah, so it was the armpit of weed. Uh, not of weed. We mass the smell with, with the weed. weed. Yeah. Um, I don't even know if that dorm is still in existence anymore. It's been renovated probably. Yeah. Have you been to Stanford's campus? Twice. It's insane. It's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely best, gorgeous. The best kids. It's the best country club you could possibly go to for four years. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> it, yeah. Very country club-esque. Rolling Hills. Rolling Hills golf. Lots of golf. Beautiful. Gyms. Facilities. All the things. Yeah. Um, where were we? Uh, you were smoking weed in a basement. I was smoking weed. Coming yeah. up with uh, business ideas with your co-founders. Yeah. yeah, so I went from inhaling glue in a garage to smoking weed in a basement. It's, it's more natural. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. That's yeah. right. It is more natural. Um, so we're smoking weed in a basement. And I guess like the goal was to figure out how to dominate the world. Um, we didn't come up with any good ideas, right? <laughs> you know, we made like really bad films. Um, tried our tried our luck at like, I guess it was like we were making films. We thought like we were gonna make a video that went viral because YouTube was this new thing then. Um, and we made a bunch of films, and actually like through happenstance figured out that like YouTube was vulnerable to be kind of like gamed, if you will. Mm. Um, so we, so we gamed YouTube and I got more views on my videos than my videos deserved. And I got pretty clear feedback from my audience that I should keep my day job and stop making videos. <laughs> but you know, Comment the, so, the silver lining was like, holy cow, we can get views on videos and people think that that's valuable. So that was the first business. And what was that business called? Called the Commotion Group. Like that. Spelled with one M. Oh, good. Commotion. And, and all the vowels? All the vowels. It was early in the internet. We could still get a domain. Fair. Yeah. What uh, year was that? Year 2006, 2007. Great. So the Commotion Group's driving people to videos. You're, I wouldn't say taking advantage, but you were Gaming. tinkering. Gaming. Yes, with YouTube. It was kind of like the first discovery around this idea of a leaderboard. Like any platform has a leaderboard or an algorithm through which it surfaces its content. Algorithms are a little bit more of a black box, but leaderboards are pretty straightforward. Like most number of views, most number of comments, most number of um, ratings. And wherever there's a leaderboard, you have the opportunity to figure out how to reverse engineer that particular metric. And so that was like my foyer into growth hacking. Ah. Yeah. And then the commotion group lasted throughout Stanford. It so it was started, it was incepted just before summer of our going into my senior year. I had an internship at 20th Century Fox as a market research intern. I had heard rumblings in the hallways about these big ad buys that were happening on YouTube where they were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get video views. And I was like, huh, I can do that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I made a bet with the then president of marketing at 20th Century Fox and said, hey, dude, save your money. Here's my first check. Instead of um, spending that money on paying YouTube, 
just let me try something out. And if it works, let's talk. And I get a call the next morning driving into the office at like seven in the morning from a restricted number. And it's the president marketing's assistant. And she says, can you please hold? I have him for you. And he, he picks up the phone and goes, what the fuck did you do? Because <laughs> <laughs> we had gotten- It's a good start. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah we'd gotten like millions of views on this movie trailer overnight. And um, on, and I was like, uh, uh, he was like, you're a genius. <laughs> you just had to wait it out yeah, just yeah, in yeah, case. Yeah. Like, how am I going to deal with this? Yeah. yeah. And then I went into the office. He had his feet kicked up on his desk. He was clapping when I walked <laughs> in. I was clapping. And he goes, let's go. And so, and so you went. So we went. And uh, what ended up happening is we got all these clients from the various movie studios while we were in our senior year of college, providing video distribution for them. Coincidentally, Facebook launches the app platform. A whole bunch of apps start getting created out of the Facebook class at mm -hmm. Stanford, which I was part of. We built some apps that went mega viral. And as a result, had a publisher network of highly targeted individuals that we could then show our videos to. And that was the advent of native advertising. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Mostly. I mean, not, it wasn't really me. I was just along for the ride. Sure. Yeah. Right class, right time. Right class, right time, right attitude. That's right. A can-do <laughs> attitude. Yeah. And then, so the commotion group, racking up video views all across the land, Facebook apps viral as hell. You're out of school at this point. Nope, we're still in school. Great. And guys like... Dave McClure and Steve Blank and Eric Rees and Ron Conway are all paying attention to this class. Um, I ended up meeting three other co-founders during that class. Or one, I had one co-founder and then we had two other co-founders that had an app factory. We merged the company and raised a seed series round just before we graduated. And was that share through? That was share through. And then how long did you work on share through? And what was share through actually? Just share through the, in the, the beginning was like pitch. just trying to figure out how to distribute videos, and it kind of, Dan, to his credit, kind of figured out native advertising as a category. Um, so Dan, Dan's the CEO. Of share through. Hi, Dan. You're the man. <laughs> um, so she, yeah. So um, I think it was about it was like somewhere between twelve and eighteen months that I was there as like the completely unqualified fourth co-founder. Right. It was like it was like an MBA, a CS dude, and a management science and engineering guy, and a tinkerer. fucking Matty Moe. You know? <laughs> it's a tinkerer. It's a tinkerer. A tinkerer on staff. Um, tinker, tinker in chief. Yeah. <laughs> tinker as a service. Yeah. Um, so I think it became like abundantly clear that I, I wasn't going to be able to con contribute the way I wanted to because I didn't know enough about the world. Mm-hmm. So I set myself free and kept my little bit of equity that I had vested as a co-founder. Good idea. That was a good move. Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I think I went to work for an agency because they were like trying to figure out this whole Facebook app thing. So we started building apps for agencies. And then that was like 2009. I went to China and accidentally got stuck there because I booked a ticket like one month after I should have booked it. You know how like when you, you're booking for like May 7th, but you accidentally booked June 7th? Yes. And it-, it Those it, calendar it, views. <laughs> it was just like yeah. a bad UX. It'll happen. So I got stuck in China for a little while and that and was And the cool. dates are switched. If it's the European and other, other anywhere but the United States. Yes. Pretty much. Yes. So that could got, happen. That kind of happened. And so I, and then I came back and I think, 
I think my friend who I was in China with came to visit me in San Francisco and he was like, hey, dude, there's this party in New York called Drop the Date. It's on uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day. You're supposed to be single to go to this party. And it was like, it was the first time I'd come to New York. I was like, you know, early 20s, went to the Drop the Date party and fell madly in love with this girl. Wow. First I didn't time. know this. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I went back to San Francisco, like after a two-day party, and I was like, I'm moving to New York for this girl. And then I moved out here, and then she left for London. Oh, <laughs> no. I was, stuck in, yeah, <laughs> I was stuck in New York. And so... <laughs> At least you booked the right date. I, I did book for the right date. For this trip, yeah. Yeah. No, no return. <laughs> Fair. Right. Well, I mean, you were about to run off and get married. Yeah. Um, so this time, what was happening? It was like 2010... Facebook ads were happening. Yeah. Holy shit, were Facebook ads happening. They sure and were. fan pages got invented. And oh, that's it, right. And this whole thing of like owning an audience became a thing. Like everything that you guys here at VaynerMedia talk about, um, that became a thing. And so like using Facebook ads to build an owned audience and then earning media and then calculating the earned media value was a thing I was like on. That yeah. was the wave I was on at the time. Um, and very good at it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Very good at it. Numbers don't lie. Check the scoreboard. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is going to be your goofiest podcast by far. I think so. I but, like it. Um, yeah. So I, I ended up getting connected with these dudes who ran like a an affiliate network that like sold dick pills and like ringtones and all the dirty the profitable stuff, stuff, super profitable stuff. And was also this like brand performance display advertising company and mobile advertising company that had all this infrastructure, but needed to like activate social ad spending on it. So using their whole sales force and their account management team, like figure out how to run Facebook ads. Um, so I did that for like, well, 12, 14 months and got to meet every agency in town. In, right. In New York, in London, in San Francisco, L.A., Texas, Atlanta, Miami, all the agencies, right? And I'd like, and at this time, like, I was obsessed with this idea of creating a persona on Instagram. Like, I, or I'm sorry, on Facebook, I changed my name from Matt Monahan to Maddie Mo, and I like posted with this particular cadence and with this particular like way of talking about things. And I would visit these agencies and always post a picture of the agency sign and check in. And I became kind of known in my circle as like the guy who's connected to all the ad agencies. And so I like ran. persona. Yeah. You still use Matty Mo to this day. I still use Matty Mo, but I'm, my, my content strategy has slightly evolved. It has shifted. Yeah. It's certainly shifted. Um, so as a result of hanging out at that really big company, I got to know all the customers and I got to know what their pain points were and what they were looking for. And I think that's right around the time I met you. That is right around the time you met me. I don't remember exactly how we met. I think Gary introduced you to me and said, go talk to this guy. That sounds about right. And we talked. We became friends. Uh, you ha were just starting the new company, formerly known? Yeah, I, I'd, left, uh, I'd left the big company to start my own thing, thinking it would make me way richer, way faster. Because you were in the right class at Stanford, first and foremost. So that was a good start. Started the company. We had we had a nice night out. Great night out. At Corner Bistro. 
I, I can't even remember the exact bill, but it was something like four hundred dollars and two dollar beers. Yeah, <laughs> and and five dollar burgers. Yeah. It was wild, and fifty shots of Jameson. But whatever. Yeah. Neither here nor there. Yeah. <laughs> Not. We don't do that anymore, though. We don't actually. <laughs> You're out like running, and I'm meditating. Right. Amazing. On huh? a different wave. Yeah. Totally. So you. So we built in the company. We, we met. Yeah. Then we started. Um, like we started helping out all these agencies figuring out their paid ad strategy. Um, Which is very profitable. It's a good thing. Yeah, it was profitable up into a point. Like up until Facebook went public, it was profitable because it was kind of this wild west. But as soon as Facebook went public, they had to start squeezing their partners for margin in order to improve their numbers so that their stock price would keep going up. So it was a cool business in 2010, 2011. But that was the first time I really started to understand like the the negative effects of platform dependency. Makes sense. Yeah. All well, your eggs are in you know, that you, one basket. And you don't know anything about that until you experience it. Right. You can hear about when it the all the time. the sky starts to fall. Yeah. And, and up until like 2010, there weren't any really big like consumer platforms. And maybe I'm Maybe I'm wrong, but maybe there weren't like any really big consumer platforms that developers were building on top of to even understand the concept of platform dependence. Yeah, I think that's right. I think Twitter was maybe the closest one, but that was a different issue where they just wound up kind of hurting a couple of developers' feelings about restricting access to their API, I think. Yeah. Nerdy. I, I know I know someone that they should restrict access to. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Call him 45. <laughs> <laughs> I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah. I think I know. The nameless. Um, so Cranking so, along. Cranking along. Yeah, good business. So like the big observation was there's all these agencies out there and they're all running ads for brands. But as soon as the brand inevitably decides they want to fire their agency and hire a new one with a better pitch and better marketing tech and all this stuff, most of the high resolution data related to previous ad spends is lost. So I wanted to be like the data repository in high resolution for Facebook ad data because then I could create data visualization tools that created insights and I could eventually run machine learning on top of it to programmatically suggest things that advertisers ought to be doing um, to eliminate the middleman. Turns out Facebook built a lot of those tools themselves. Hmm. And they have better engineering team than me. That <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> you know? A few um, more resources. So like 2012 happens. Um, I, I had done some like investing and I had like a really good outcome with one of my investments. So I was like, oh man, so I'm now I got some money and this Facebook thing it doesn't look like it's going to work out for all these big preferred marketing developers. I'm going to try to sell this thing. So I went and tried to find someone to buy it. Yeah, knocking on doors, had some successful meetings. Yeah, came pretty close, pretty darn close. And you didn't wind up selling it. No, because I decided to get drunk and naked on a beach in India. And yes, you did do that, but someone also decided to post that and send it to Gawker. Yeah, which which taught me another valuable lesson. You know, okay, which just, was just so we're just so we're uh, keeping track. Platform dependency, bad. Um, sniffing glue in a garage, bad. Very bad. Third thing, uh, not controlling the narrative of your digital identity, bad. Very bad. Yeah. So Especially when you were so careful to date with the persona, the internet persona that you had portrayed as Matty Mo. 
Well, I was careful in crafting that persona, but I left that persona vulnerable in a number of ways. You're vulnerable if you're CEO. You're mm -hmm. vulnerable if you're any type of public figure that isn't um, well known for not giving a fuck. Right. If you're too buttoned up, as soon as a button comes off, you're vulnerable. Yeah. Playing defense. Playing defense. Um, so what ended up happening to me was that I got um, film stumbling around drunk and naked. This video got posted. I wasn't PR media trained. And so I started apologizing. First rule of public shaming, never apologize. <laughs> Don't apologize. You read the book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson? No. If anyone ever goes through a public humiliation, read that book and follow the instructions in that book. And you'll see you'll, it through. Yeah. I mean, you'll always get through it no matter what. It just changes your perspective on like kind of what's going on. Um, but it's pretty overwhelming. I mean, that situation alone, I, that was insane. I remember when it was happening. Yeah. It's I mean, like the, a terrible movie. The net net of it was no acquirer would buy me. No investor would put more money into a business that needed resources to scale because I had told investors it was a bad industry. Um, team was went from like shopping for Ferraris to not shopping for Ferraris overnight because I made bad decisions and the whole thing imploded in like 24 hours. Very How quickly. crazy is that? It's pretty wild. I couldn't believe it. It was um, tough. And I'm not the one that had to experience it fully. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine what that felt like in the moment. Yeah. Well, I think the silver lining is I became the most famous artist because of it. That's right. Um, and that's that's why I was excited to actually have you on the podcast because this podcast is about building brands and I think you're one of the best brand builders where you actually happen to do it for yourself like you did with Maddie Mo. The most famous artist is an incredible product that you have developed based on the thesis that art is bullshit. Well, it's it first well, first that's is how it based, started. first based on the thesis that I wanted to pick an identity that left me less vulnerable. And I, so I got thinking about identities a lot and I thought about like, okay, CEO is a, is a vulnerable identity. Uh, and especially for a character like me, like I'm a wild man. man. You are. You're an <laughs> enigma. Fucking, yeah. I'm a fucking wild man. Um, so artists though, like artists, it's like, had I been an artist as my title and that video come out, I would have been clapped. I would have been clapped Hero. into like a big hug circle. Um, so I started out with this premise that like, I wanted to just change my identity to an artist so that I couldn't be scrutinized. Um, and that got me investigating, like Googling, like how to become a famous artist, how to make art, like all these things. I didn't know any of that shit. Right. Um, and I found out that you can just become a famous artist. Yeah, if you, you say you are decide and so the the big takeaway is like you get to decide what you want to be on the internet like if you have a bad press moment you have to bury that by telling a new story about yourself and so i just i happened to like get lucky the first time around telling a, a new story about myself and inventing the most famous artist you decided to become the most famous artist you were yeah. enabled and what some people some gurus if you will today will call manifesting mm. You manifested the most famous artist. What was your first actual foray into the art world? What was one of your first projects or pieces? Well, it it started out wanting to be an artist, and then it it took about twelve months of just involving myself with artists to try to figure out what it was about being an artist, what it was being an artist actually meant. 
And my, my takeaway from that is that being an artist is about um, a particular lifestyle and about cultivating a particular community and about approaching problems and life a particular way. Yeah. And, and so it took about 12 months of like research and apprenticeships with butchers and DJs and graffiti artists to kind of figure that out for myself. And then it also, I, I kept my, kept this theme of like growth hacking going. Um, and I think my first, my first like foyer into art was I tried to write a book as like this cathartic thing about my life up until the drunk naked founder. Right. It was titled War and Porn. Yes. The internet started with war, spread through porn, and is now connecting us all. And it, the book was about how the internet has changed and how the internet has changed me. And, um, and so I, I tried to write this book, and, and then I got it thinking about like how to growth hack this book, and I started publishing on Medium. It was a new platform at the time. And through a series of clever hacks, started publishing these stories that were like, not entirely not entirely factual but like just stuff people was were devouring right um (laughs) and then and i was like holy shit people want like compelling crazy ass content and as soon as you stop giving a fuck and you're able to publish like whatever you want and just go just go all of a sudden you can you like kind of have this like superpower you go from being vulnerable to being like um what is it with shield, like power was well, having a shield yeah. having like a like superhero strength or something like that so i published like i published a story called lifestyles of the young rich and homeless um i i published a story about about like meeting zuckerberg at stanford when i was an undergrad um and then i eventually published this letter called like it was called um it was, it was a letter from Banksy. I basically right. wrote myself a letter from Banksy, sent it to myself, took a photo of it, and then wrote a story about it. And this shit went crazy viral. I remember that so well. And, and then I realized, like, holy cow, art is about referencing other artists. Like, that's all artists throughout history is it's like contextualizing your work within the canon of someone else's work. And so I chose Banksy as my mark, a good one, because he couldn't really defend himself. Right anonymous like i can yeah. say whatever i want like Banksy, ideal banksy's my dad <laughs> prove me wrong right <laughs> and so well that's why he wanted you to go down the co-founder path because he's seen how everything's been playing exactly out with his art and, yeah so Banks business banksy's my co-founder my dad all the things yeah big part of your life big part of my life banksy's a big part of my life and so the, so you ask like what's the first thing is like it started with this book and then i growth hacked some stories out of the book and realized I could like leverage Banksy's cred to build my art persona. So I took a look at Banksy's uh, art, and one of the themes he was using was these flea market paintings or like old found paintings, and then painting something clever on top of them, recontextualizing them, and then selling them to the market. And at this time, it was like fall of 2013. He had just done his Better Out Than In residency in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, I had published a, a letter saying Banksy was coming to LA and he wanted me to throw him a dinner party. That's and right. I remember that. I was hoping to get the invite. for that. <laughs> oh God. It was a great dinner. <laughs> it was a great, well, it didn't happen. Uh, In theory, it was a great dinner. It was going to be a great dinner. Exactly. Yeah. He just had uh, scheduling issues. Um, 
Yeah, his people didn't connect with my people. Yeah, it's and I was giving you a hard time about scheduling earlier. Um, so I made a show with flea market paintings, and I called it War and Porn because I couldn't get over the fact that I still hadn't published this book, and it was simply pictures out of like Playboy magazines that I cut out and modge podged onto canvases, and pictures out of war books, and just like. The juxtaposition looked good and required little to no artistic skill because right. I was literally just <laughs> using cutting scissors, pictures cutting out pictures and gluing out. them. And a hat tip to the garage days totally. with all the glue. I totally did. Yeah. And so the so it's funny because like I'm I'm going through like all of my individual hacks to get to the most famous artists, and this was one of them. I I made all these like crappy artworks that kind of were referencing Banksy Banksy's aesthetic. I found a gallerist who I said, like, please let me have, like, a one-day show here. Um, I priced every painting of 20 paintings at $50,000, so I called it Maddie Moe's Million Dollar Art Show. And at the end of the art show, I wrote a check to myself for $476,000 or something like that, and I posted on Instagram. <laughs> and, yeah. And then I wrote a story about the story of Banksy and then the arch, the million dollar art show. And then it being a, like in quote air quotes, a sellout show. And mind you, like none of this is a lie. This is all just like controlling the narrative. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's all just controlling the narrative. And so as a result of publishing this post called Maddie Moe's million dollar art show, where I sold a million dollars worth of art, all these galleries started reaching out to me going, holy shit, dude. Like, and if you Googled me at the time, it was like, Matty Moe, tech millionaire, turned artist, dude, dude. Yeah. <laughs> drunk naked founder. And everyone's right. like, <laughs> what a fascinating story. Yeah. And so all these gallerists started reaching out and it became this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like another hack, there was this gallerist in, in LA uh, called Guy Hepner. And at this point I've worked with this gallerist a bunch and he sold a lot of my work. But in order to get into that gallery... I went and dropped off a painting on a day I knew he wasn't there. And I told his assistants, like, guys expecting this. And I, like, put it down. And then I had one of my friends go in and try to buy it Genius. from the assistant. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a call, uh, getting an email from Guy Hefner going, what is going on? Who are on? you? <laughs> Who are you and what is going on here? And so, like, through these series of growth hacks that are quite literally analogous to hacking YouTube or hacking Facebook apps or hacking Facebook ads. I just hacked the art world. Um, so it started out making these paintings. It turns, okay, so I started selling paintings, Phil. Guess what? You got to ship them. Yeah. You got to get a studio. Mm -hmm. You got to like manage your supplies. You got you to gotta even catalog these things. You got to create certificates of authenticity. You have to remarket to all of these like collectors. None of this shit I knew how to do. Right. Turns out very few other artists know how to do it either. <laughs> Which is helpful. Which is what's the crazy observation is that like the art school institution teaches you how to paint, but not how to live as an artist. And so like I started thinking, holy shit, I could like help a bunch of artists build careers and become like the Timberland to their Justin Timberlake. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's kind of how it got going. Like that's how like it really picked up is I started to incubate artists thinking about them as startups where I'd invest a little bit of seed capital in giving them space and resources. I'd then help them conceptualize ideas, bring those ideas to market through a headline worthy story, sell a bunch of their work, take a piece of it, and then 
hold on to the work as my stock options. Um, so that happened for about a year. And then I realized... That was the studio downtown, right? That was right? studio downtown. I think you saw that one. Mm-hmm. Came to that. Did. Um, and then somewhere along the way, it was less interesting. So Instagram was a really hotbed for selling art direct to consumer, especially in like 2015, 2016. Because up until then, you hadn't really had access directly to artists. You were buying through like a big art platform, like a Saatchi Art, or you're buying prints. But you weren't necessarily able to contact the artist directly. And Instagram right. changed all that. So there, there were all these artists that came out with like art in the $500 to $2,000 price point range that started getting bought like crazy. Like I sold more art in 2015, 2016 than I think I ever will. Like right. It was just insane. Yeah. Everyone wanted a painting. And it was a lot of first-time buyers and everyone was really excited. Um, that died down come 2017. And people started to think, I started to think like, how am I going to, how am I going to grow my career? And it became apparent to me that like brands were the way to do that at all the re- agency relationships. And what brands were looking for were the creation of like selfie spots or murals that were a more effective media spend than a billboard. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is a couple of reasons. A billboard performs better than uh, TV, print, and radio for digital conversion because People are like driving around and they see a billboard and then they like access the URL. It just is something, it's just like something to do. However, a a mural performs even better because it's one at street level and it's set up such that the consumer actually becomes the marketer of the ad. Earned media. Earned media, baby. It's all Beautiful same, thing. It's all the same shit. Um, so started building like a network of walls, started building a network of muralists started to package that up in like a operationalized way to sell brands murals did that for about a year and so i guess like and it's you, just you it's a bunch of tinkering. pretty big murals that you are behind that yeah like probably every, some listeners have taken photos in front of yeah mostly in los angeles mostly in los angeles yeah there's pretty one cool. in arkansas i think one in new york one or two in new york yeah, yeah. but anyway so like the mural thing was cool um but the challenge was i did this mural for um, who I did a I did a mural for one of the most followed people on Instagram, and the mural can was, we name drop? I think I think it's out there. That's Selena Gomez. Yep. Um, I did it for her when she had an award show. Maybe the AMAs or maybe the Billboard. One yeah, of those, I think it was AMAs. One of those two. Um, and so she we made this mural and she tweeted about it with her and Marshmallow for their song. And then all of these kids showed up and took pictures in front of this mural. And I was like, holy shit, it's working. The challenge was when I looked at the comment section, there was a whole bunch of people that didn't live in Los Angeles that wanted to participate, but couldn't because it was physical space. It was a physical space. Um, Finite limits on that. Yeah. So I got thinking like, how do I scale physical spaces? And that's where we're at right now. Where is that exactly? What, what does you, that look like? How have you how have you begun to scale the physical space? I started space? to think it was modular, selfie-friendly installations. I did this experience where I created a fuselage of a private jet so that people could, so like, thesis here is there are memes which really mean repeated imagery on Instagram. One such meme is influencer on private jet 
highly desirable meme to participate in. So if I can democratize access to that, I would have lots of people lining up to take pictures who would then share those pictures and those pictures would turn into more people lining up to take pictures. Um, bit of advice. If you build a fuselage of a private jet and you make it so that it folds up into a crate and your business model is to make it travel around the world, be prepared to be a logistics company. Yeah. That's a big thing to ship. Yeah, it sucks. Um, so the jet went, you know, from San Francisco or from Los Angeles at Fred Siegel to Miami for our Basel, and then back to Los Angeles for a famous rapper's album release party, and then it was uh, the featured uh, installation at the Fire Experience, which was another weird growth hack where when when Hulu and Netflix dropped their documentaries, we. Uh, created an experience called the Fire Experience, where you for could, the Fire Festival, or, which I'm sure you're all familiar with at this point, and you've watched one or both documentaries. Yeah, well, it was it was brilliant of both of them to release their documentaries the same weekend because then it created this like this cultural like kind of phenomenon, and so we were like, holy shit, everyone's talking about this. Let's just make a pop up that is the Fire Experience with pigs and a beach, and we had a baby jaw rule. <laughs> we had cheese sandwiches. The cheese sandwiches, I, I, they were beautiful. Very Fire well. merch. We had like influencers there. And then the media went ape shit. Ate it up. Ate it up. Um, growth hack. Growth hack. Hey, growth hack. Yeah. yeah. So now I don't think selfie friendly modular sets is the business. I think that looks too much like a photo booth company. And I'm not really trying to build a photo booth company. Right. You're so much more. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Time will tell, man. Um, so now I'm thinking about like the the opportunity to place make uh, in the digital landscape or digital worlds. So like taking physical places and thinking deeply about how those physical places translate to a digital identity. And here's a really tangible example. Go to a hotel and you click on their tagged photos, there's going to be particular instances of that hotel that consumers naturally gravitate towards to take pictures. And it could be a picture of the floor because of the tile. Mm -hmm. It could be the bathroom. It could be some chandelier. It could be the, uh, the um, upholstery on the couches. It could be something. It could be a dish that they serve. And so we've got We've got architects and we've got interior designers and we've got branders who like come up with the logo and the color palette and the fonts and all that shit. But no one's really thinking about like, how do we purposefully create the experience such that it most optimally translates into a brand identity online? Yeah. And so I'm thinking like, what if I could get Hilton hotels to let me redo all their hotels to make them travel better digitally because people want to take photos anyways. Yeah. They want, they to, want to post them and show where they've been and what they've experienced and just showcase it. And so I think like Hudson Yards is really cool. Like we're sitting in Hudson Yards right now and it's a really good example of like a forward thinking retail situation, but how do we actually Amazon proof retail? And it's by like creating so much value in retail, which I think is allowing people to construct their digital identities that they want to get off their phone to go to a place to get back on their phone. Because right now people are just on their phone in bed. Right. Ordering Postmates and 
order and like riding Ubers around and whatever. And showcasing their life to other people on their phone in bed ordering Postmates and yeah. Ubers. So I think like, and so this goes back to like one of the main themes of this whole thing is like, it's all about identity construction. Like through the process of becoming the most famous artist, I realized like I, you have an opportunity to become a persona. And no matter where your persona is right now, you can invent a persona and then you can create the headlines and the content that allow that persona to become a reality online. And that's a powerful thing. Like as a result of being the most famous artist, I get to be on this podcast. Right. Um, and the most famous artist is even real. I don't know how to paint. It's the best. <laughs> and I still I have two of your pieces. You do. They're beautiful. Man. They're well, they're well painted. I'll tell you that. The difference two part. things <laughs> to jump back to that I yeah. want to talk about. And you can tell me to fuck off if you don't want to talk about them. But there were, there were two of your pieces. Uh, the first one that was, I thought was hilarious and really well executed. The video is amazing. Art Basel. I think it was the first time that you went with the cash, with the clear bag of cash. Okay. I, I would love to get the behind the scenes of how that came together because sure. I thought it was hilarious. And I think it actually bumped you up a little bit in the creation of the most famous artists as well, because it, it gave you a cosign and people were talking about you at Basel. 1000%. So the, the takeaway from the cash brick video or the cash brick, which I'll get into like the, the brass tacks of in a second, is that news media is looking for headlines. And if you as an entrepreneur or an artist or a business owner can come up with a story for a news outlet that fits into their, their headline paradigm, which is simply a line of text and an image. If you can come up with that, you have new forms of distribution. And so the second thing is, if you're good at pattern recognition, you'll notice memes that not everyone notices. And a particular meme I noticed was rapper holding cash brick to face creating the illusion that they were holding all this cash when in fact that cash brick could have been fake easily. And, yeah. And so I was, I was watching this like little bow wow, Timothy Sykes, like um, argument happening on social media. And I was like, you know, what would be funny is if I just made my own cash bricks. And so I created a, a brick of a thousand U S legal bills. Yes. Um, I serialized the whole thing into an Excel document. Um, all you could see was that it was bookended with 100s, authentic 100s. And I ordered off at Amazon those sleeves that say like $10,000 per stack. And I put 10 of them together and I saran wrapped it together. And then I put a sticker that was perforated. So if you tore the sticker, you destroyed the art. And I listed them on Instagram as an object called, in quotes, $100,000. And I described it as a thousand legal, thousand bills of legal U.S. tender. Um, comes with a certificate of authenticity along with serial numbers of all those bills. If you were to destroy it and open it, it no longer holds its arts value. It's just its cash value. And it became, and I priced it at $5,000. So the perception was you buy $100,000 and if you Google me, Theoretically, I'd be crazy enough to sell $100,000 for $5,000. Theoretically. Theoretically. I could, I could get to that conclusion, <laughs> probably. Um, 
And so there were these interesting things that happened where people were buying this cash and they either thought it was $100,000 or they rationalized, well, at worst, it's $1,198, 998 ones with two 100s on the end. And I'm paying 5000 And so the actual cost of this artwork is around 3000 3200 30 I don't even know, $3,800. So my worst worst case, I'm spending $3,800 to buy a piece of work that might be consequential. Maybe I'm buying $100,000 in cash. And because of like the, because of the, the mystery of it and kind of the provocative nature of it, it went crazy fucking viral. And yeah. I sold 10 bricks of cash for $5,000 each, made a nice profit. And then as a result of that, I decided I wanted to kind of like take it a step further. So I put 10 of those bundles in a transparent bag. And then I got a bodyguard to come with me to uh, Art New York, which was happening Uh, during Freeze Week. It was here in New York in May of 2016. And I convinced Elite Daily to be um, the content production team on that one. Shout out Elite Daily. <laughs> Shout out Bustle. <laughs> um, and they made a video wherein I drag, I, I walked into the art fair and I tried to communicate with gallerists and said, hey, I'm an artist. My name is Maddie Mo. I'm the most famous artist. And they basically told me to go fuck myself. And then I walked back in the next day with a million bucks and the same gallerist thought I was their best friend. Of course. And it, it, it kind of showed this interesting... It showed in not a lot of words, kind of the nature of the art market. And you didn't, you didn't just walk in with a million dollars. You were whimsically dragging the sack <laughs> of clear $100,000 bricks behind you with a bodyguard, really sending a statement. Yeah, it, well, it, it's heavy. Have you ever carried a million dollars cash? <laughs> I have not. I have not. Well, though, I wasn't intending to drag the bricks. It's just like, it's so heavy. Like a million dollars is- Yeah, like, you're only one man. I'm only one man. Um, yeah, so that video got something like 17 million views. And now I can't go to an art fair without people going, oh, that's the guy who dragged- The cash guy. Yeah. But the, the big takeaway was, holy cow, I can make content that goes viral that shares my art projects, which I then monetize on the back end. Mm-hmm. And so I went on to um, make a self-portrait with a famous dog. Remember? And that one went viral on like BuzzFeed and yeah. little things and a Chloe. few others. Chloe. Rest in peace. Rest, RIP Chloe. Um, I taught, well, I, I collaborated with these twins who paint, like sat on the faces of famous artists with paint <laughs> on their butts. Yeah. <laughs> Kaplan twins. <laughs> the Kaplan twins. Um, a guy in my artist collective changed the Hollywood sign to say Hollyweed. Mm-hmm. Jesus hands. Remember he that. He was my videographer. And then we kind of assisted him in the creation of some content around that. Um, and, then have, and then, you know, have just been making headline worthy art. So like my tagline now, which evolved out of like all this garbly gook you just listened to for the last like whatever <laughs> amount of time. Sorry. Um was that I make selfie-friendly, headline-worthy art. I'm the most famous artist. It sounds super concise now, but yeah. it took like a whole lot of tinkering to it's get It's years, here. years in the making. Five years of tinkering. And and now people come to me to hire me to create headline-worthy projects for them and to create selfie-friendly installations for them through my agency, which 
hires artists so that they don't have to work at Starbucks, but they can actually work on things that they're passionate about. Um, and then, like, I'm trying to build IP so that I can, you know, retire on, in the Bahamas. Earlier. Yeah, earlier. Earlier. Yeah. Yeah, I don't even know if I want to retire. I just, I, I want to live a little differently. It's, I don't even really want to live differently. It's that I want to, I, I want to be able to look at someone in the face and go, it's all going to be good. Because honestly, I'm scared as fuck at all moments in my life. Like, cause you never know what's going to happen. That's like, right. That's right. Like the alpha boost thing is a great example of like shit could go totally sideways. Yeah. Like one day you like, were sipping on a beer <laughs> hours before more like Johnny Walker blue, but yeah, fine. But <laughs> it's like a lot of Johnny Walker yeah. blue. Um, yeah. So like, I would just like, I would like to kind of have a little bit less chaos in the world. And I, th- I think, think uh resources create that but i could be totally wrong yeah we'll find out we'll find out the other the other piece your most daring i would say definitely the most expensive i'd say as well i'm like you're covering it right now but it's your arm yeah your arm is actually art yeah man so 2017 I was in New York. I had just published a whole bunch of uh, nude Snapchat photos as art on the eve of Snapchat's IPO. Again, trolling the press. Yes. It, it worked. Ate it up. Ate it up. Um, the statement there is like, this content doesn't go away, and this is proof that it doesn't go away. And um, then the city of New York had to shut that one down for indecent exposure. And I, and I was like, but the city of New York is celebrating this company on wall street that, you know, is effectively the platform that enables this stuff. And to be clear, it was all consensual. It was all consensual. 18 plus no identifiable features had to include the words, happy birthday, the most famous artist. I checked on that. Check, 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 check. Just wanted to be clear. Yeah, it was clear. Um, all good. Uh, really disgusting though. Like, Humanity is a bit gross when you like you. Ask it gets to, weird. It gets really weird. If like I can't even really open my Snapchat anymore without getting like a picture of a butthole. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have that problem? I don't have that problem. God. Actually, I, like, I don't I think took, I've ever had that problem. But. I took a perfectly good Snapchat account and fucked it up right <laughs> in our project. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I I got my arm tattooed to say the most famous artist, which is my signature. And I had this like harebrained idea that I was gonna like announce that my arm was for sale. It it gives me the chills just thinking about it. Like I don't even like I don't even I don't even really like talking about it because like there was a moment there where I was like holy holy shit someone's gonna buy my arm yeah and, and the price was like fifty million or like a hundred million and then I got to thinking like would I actually do it yeah and do it means he would cut his arm off. Well, I would have to go to like Thailand or something. Yeah, to get of it course, checked, no which has doctor. its own issues. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're seeking out alternative medicine options to cut off your own arm, you have some risks you're running. Yeah, so I di- I'm not I'm not super. I've got the tattoo on my arm, which I think shows my commitment to the most famous artist. The idea of selling my arm was like this riff on Damien Hirst putting like live an- or dead animals inside of formaldehyde tanks and Chris Burden getting shot in the arm. And like, 
it turns out I'm just, I don't have enough balls to do that, actually. I think that's fine. Yeah, I just, it, it literally gives me the chills thinking about it. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. But whether or not you actually do cut off your arm, it's still art. Yes, and um, Cosmopolitan Magazine wrote about that. So, whatever. Yeah, check. <laughs> check. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's that project. The Pink Houses was also cool. You know, What were the Pink Houses? Um, one of the most popular selfie spots in LA is Paul Smith's pink wall. Mm-hmm. Um, I took the ex- pretty much the same color pink. Not sure if it's the exact color as far as the pink. Likely not. Likely not because they probably have their own proprietary pink. Um, and I painted a block of houses slated for demolition pink. And it turned into an absolute selfie circus. Ah, selfie circus. Full circle. Full circle. For the circus. Yeah. Um, what is selfie circus? Selfie Circus is a business that was coincidentally funded by Snapchat's uh, creative accelerator Yellow LA in the fall of 2018, which I'm still currently operating. Um, It was the company that created the private jet fuselage, and it was focused on modular selfie-friendly destinations. Now... We're more focused on experience design more holistically. Um, more scalable. More scalable, super scalable, super duper duper scalable. Key. Yeah. Um, I think is this is now the time to pitch. Like if you're if you're looking for an experience design guy, I'm your guy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Any yeah. shout out you want. Shout out, shout out Phil. <laughs> <laughs> so what what's what's the name the new name? Because it's I no think, longer selfie circus. Well, it's Genius Inc. spelled J-E-E-N-Y-U-H-S. Yeah. The phonetic spelling of genius. That's right. We're not everything is, as it seems. Um, nice. Genius Inc. is the name of the company. Self, we're doing business as Selfie Circus. We've been kind of like cruising around as ex-TMFA. The observation being that most customers want to hire the most famous artist and Selfie Circus is too far removed. So Too much explanation. We've been calling it ex-TMFA, like collab with... T- the most famous artist. Um, yeah, so we're working on a couple projects. We're like talking to people in like Dubai and we got Asian projects. Yeah, you were like, just in China. You're probably going back very soon. Yeah, I think I'm going to London next week. Great. Yeah. Sh- to find the girl that you moved to New York for <laughs> no, originally? Is no, that she's like happily married. She she did good. She did just fine. She'll be all right. <laughs> well, before I let you go. Yeah. One question I have is, what's your life mantra? I have another tattoo, Phil, and it's on my chest right here. And it says, go fucking do it then. And I want to hear you say it. Yeah, go fucking do it then. Yeah, the, the whole point is like, it's it's really easy to sit around and criticize people. And like some of you are probably listening to this going, this guy's an idiot. But the fact is, I went and fucking did it. So um, before you criticize anyone or before you... You, uh, you you pass judgment on anyone, go fucking do it then. Yeah, That's- it's a great reminder for yourself, but also to, to teach others. Yeah. I love it. Well, this was fun. I don't, I, <laughs> I'm excited to hear this. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll send you a revision okay. for sure. Okay. But, and the last thing, where can people find you? Where, where do you want to drive traffic? I think it's most helpful if you Google search the most famous artist. And then you click on my website, which is the first result, themostfamousartist.com. 
or depending on your country and your browser, I might be one of the photos of famous artists like next to Picasso or Warhol. You might have to <laughs> scroll right a little bit, but then click on my photo because then that will train Google that people are actually looking for me when you search the most famous artist. Obviously, you can get me on Instagram at the most famous artist. Always my, my email is maddie, M-A-T-T-Y, at themostfamousartist.com. Amazing. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Phil. As you can see, pretty interesting story. And one thing that I really appreciate about Maddie is that very little of what he does or puts out there is by accident. And he's very, very intentional with word choices and just different things that you may not think have strategy behind them. They usually do. He's one of the smarter people that I know and interact with, uh, despite what he may want me to say in the outro, but that's most certainly true. Uh, his journey to become a famous artist is fascinating and the different levers and strategies that he used to do that, uh, using the press and, and knowing human psychology is really interesting and an incredible approach to building a brand and business. And I think he's definitely found a really interesting lane to run down for a while until he figures up his next plan. I mean, the one the one thing I really want to drive home from his story in, in our conversation is actually there's two things. One, you have more control around your own personal and professional narrative than you likely realize. And being intentional and thoughtful around that idea will only serve you in a positive way, in my opinion, along the way. So definitely keep that in mind. And the second piece is just driving home his life motto, which he has tattooed on his chest. Go fucking do it then. I love that. I've always loved that. He's shared that with me many times over the years. And it's it's really good advice. I mean, before any of us, and I'm guilty of this too, before we get on the soapbox and judge, put yourself in another person's shoes and, and think about what it might take to execute that and it's a very broad piece of advice, but until you do it, you can't really talk about it. I mean, if anything, Jay-Z said it best. People want to tell you how to do it and they've never done it. I might have butchered that a little bit, but I'm pretty sure that's on the Blueprint 3, but couldn't agree with him more. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Thank you again in advance for sharing with your friends, tagging me on Instagram, liking anywhere that I posted this five stars on iTunes follow me on Spotify thank you again for coming back and I'll see you next week